Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University. And you're listening to Measured Justice. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today on this episode, we're talking about the new book entitled Manifesting Justice, which explores the wrongful conviction phenomenon and the ways in which it affects or is affected by gender identity, sexual orientation, race, public health, and other topics. We're fortunate to be joined today by Valina Beattie, the author of that book, Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights, which is published this June. She's a professor of law here at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, as well as my fellow director of the Academy for Justice and a longtime innocence litigator. To discuss the book and the issues it raises, we're also joined by Candace Bond-Terrio, the Director of Racial Justice Policy and Strategy at Columbia University Center for Gender and Sexuality Law, and Richard Sines, Senior Attorney with Lambda Legal and Strategist for Lambda's work on criminal justice and police misconduct. You can find their full biographies on academyforjustice.org. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's begin with the author, Valina. Tell us about the book. What is the genesis of the book and what led you to write it uh, the way that you did? Thanks, Eric. So the book is about how uh, women and queer people are uh, particularly susceptible to wrongful convictions. Uh, so I wanted to write about this because I am a queer woman and because I have represented queer women who have been wrongfully convicted. And this book follows the story of one of my clients and her co-defendant who are lesbians. They were in Mississippi and they were wrongfully convicted of a crime they never committed because of homophobia and because of faulty forensic evidence. It was bogus bite mark evidence in this case. And so that's what really led me to write the book. And the title of the book, Manifesting Justice, directly references what I think we can do as a solution. And that is bringing claims of manifest injustice or miscarriage of justice to the courts. That a court, instead of looking at whether a defendant can 100% prove to the satisfaction of the court that they were wrongfully convicted and they're factually innocent, which many women have a harder time doing that because they don't have DNA evidence in their case. Instead of having that be the standard, looking at can we uphold the validity and reliability of this conviction? If we know there's been false evidence presented to the jury, if we know the prosecutor has not disclosed exculpatory evidence, 
if we know other hallmarks of wrongful conviction, uh, and if we know that there's been bias against the defendants in this case, can we uphold the legitimacy of this conviction? Uh, that's what I think should be the standard, and that's what I encourage uh, litigators to bring and courts to rule on. Well, Nan, can you tell us a little bit about the unique vulnerabilities that, that you write about and how this plays in on the wrongful conviction phenomenon, about the public perception and stereotypes that end up impacting people within the LGBTQ plus community and its role in creating uh, wrongful convictions? Absolutely. Queer people are more susceptible to being wrongly arrested, wrongly charged, wrongly convicted, particularly for um, sex offenses, in part because we have a history of criminalizing queer identity. We have over 100 years of criminalizing open affection, physical affection between queer people, criminalizing gender presentation, uh, what type of clothing people wear. Uh, and that history continues on into our criminal legal system today and influences behavior of police, of prosecutors, of juries, and of judges. Uh, so that connection between criminality and queer identity uh, still continues. And in my own lifetime, I'm married to a woman. I would not have been able to uh, marry the love of my life uh, within the past few years. Within my lifetime, I would not be able to openly have a sexual relationship with her uh, because it would also be criminalized. So these are recent changes that have happened in our society, and yet we're still burdened by the, the stereotypes and the, um, the way our system previously did criminalize queerness. As a follow-up to this, Valina, in the past, scholars in areas of policing, for instance, have talked about uh, individuals from particular linguistic communities or particular cultural backgrounds uh, speaking in a different register and that the legal system was oriented towards a particular uh, perspective, that perhaps that of white male um, individuals, a very, an entirely different way in which uh, the system approaches uh, uh, individuals that in fact ends up perhaps, maybe not necessarily discriminating, but certainly putting individuals at a disadvantage. Is there, are, are similar things at work, uh, you believe in the LGBT community um, in terms of how people perceive the community or how, in fact, the communication occurs between the community and our own criminal justice system and all that it has uh, charms and warts. Yes. And the uh, structure that we currently have in our system encourages people who are LGBTQ plus to pass uh, or to try to pass in the courtroom. It encouraged me as a attorney representing a client to try to pass as straight, to try to pass as femme, uh, so that any hostility that could be geared towards me as someone who would not fit a certain paradigm wouldn't be passed on to my client. It's something I've had discussions with my clients about, about how they present in the courtroom and the difficulty of being authentic in a courtroom that uh, is dominated by a, a different culture and that may just inherently see me or see my client as an outsider. Yeah, I think this is a very tough question um, because 
there are queer people who can pass. And do we look to the individual case and whether that would help the individual in that situation? Or do we look at the harm overall of passing, of erasing queer identity, where queer identity only comes up in the courtroom if someone is charged with being a sex offender or is the victim of a hate crime, but otherwise we erase queer identity. Um, what is the overarching harm of that? And I now firmly believe, particularly after writing this book, that visibility is uh, very important. Thank you, Valina. Let's let's bring, bring in our uh, other guests. Richard, you have, have worked extensively on both issues within the LGBTQ plus community and its intersections in criminal justice. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about the challenges that you uh, have faced or that your organization has faced in dealing with these issues and perhaps as 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 Valina, uh, points out how they affect issues like wrongful convictions sure and thank you so much for having me um, to to discuss these important topics I like to start with the fact that for years LGBTQ people were criminalized and it was accepted that criminal laws could be used to um, arrest people, to harass them, to stop them in the street because of what they were wearing, um, for police to go into people's homes and um, also harass, arrest them. Um, almost 20 years ago, uh, the Supreme Court decided in the case of Lawrence v. Texas that Lambda Legal was counsel on that sodomy laws um, were unconstitutional. This overturned a an earlier decision from the 80s that found that um, these laws were fine. Uh, so what changed? And I, I think what Valina was um, talking about, the, uh, about our visibility and our, the more that we were able to live our lives as out LGBTQ people helped bring around not only the cultu cultural and social changes, but also legal change. I like to talk about our constitution as belonging to us too. It's not just for straight um, white men um, who we, you know, we look on the founding fathers with so much, uh, we hold them up so high, but so many people were left out of the constitution and our laws, um, but we weren't left out when they were used against us. And I think we're still living in those times. Even with the victory in Lawrence v. Texas, uh, again, this was um, less than 20 years ago, we're currently seeing an onslaught of attacks through state legislators and bringing new laws that will again criminalize LGBTQ people for who we are. Uh, for example, um, just this past weekend, a bill was introduced in the state of Florida concerning criminalizing parents for bringing young people to drag shows. We saw a huge escalation from where we were just a few months ago from talking about um, laws known as the don't say gay, don't say trans laws that were passing. And there's this, this, I feel like we're in this moment of disbelief that we are having to fight against these laws, um, these horrible unconstitutional laws, while so much is happening within our country, including um, the ongoing pandemic, um, including the increase in gun violence. So much is happening, yet our community is being made um, targets of hostile legislators and 
people are listening to what's on the news and listening to um, governors who are trying to paint LGBTQ people as this other or this danger to them and their families. And it's happening out in the streets too. With At the same time that this bill was introduced in Florida concerning criminalizing people, uh, um, taking young, young kids to drag shows, we heard of an arrest of 31 people who were white supremacists who were targeting a pride festival. I'm concerned that these laws are even the book, the, the laws that remain on the books and some states still have sodomy laws, even though they were held unconstitutional, just the threat of using the power of the law, using the power of the criminal law against our community is giving people, emboldening people to attack our community. So before even going into the legal theories or how do we, how do we as a community use the legal system, that's where my mind is right now because the threat is imminent and it's coming from so many directions against our community. But with all that being said, the law can also protect us. And so it's, it's, it's a battle, um, but, and as a movement, I think there's more we can do to, to use the law positively. But unfortunately, we are in a position where we have to protect and defend ourselves because we're being attacked in, on, on so many fronts right now. Thank you, Richard. Let, let me bring in Candace. Candace, you, you have worked extensively at the intersection of uh, reproductive rights and racial justice. Um, could you shine some light on uh, how these issues are affected by the criminal justice system and how it affects, of course, women of color, but, but also in particular, pregnant women of color. Yeah, so as Richard was saying, the moment we are in is dire. The house has been on fire. The house is pretty much burnt down, right? Like we're not even in this, the house is on fire. What do we do? Like the house is already burnt. We're looking at ashes. We're trying to figure out what to do next um, is how I'm feeling about the state of our constitution and the state of our democracy right now. And as a queer black woman myself, as a queer black femme, it's really bad out there. And criminalization. So last night I rewatched 13th, the documentary by Ava DuVernay. Um, it was something I watched in 2016 and when it debuted, but I was like, let me watch it again. I have some talks on criminal justice this week. Let me get caught up. And it is still a visceral emotional experience to watch something like that. And I was really drawn this time in this 2022 mindset that I have right now that the documentary really focused on Black men and not at all Black women. There was maybe a mention of one or two Black women and then not at all on queerness or trans folks or gender nonconforming folks. And it was just this one specific story on the criminalization of Black men, which is incredibly important, right? It's incredibly important that we should show awareness and bring awareness to that issue. But there are so many other people that are incarcerated, are criminalized, are detained. And that includes women of color and that includes queer women of color. And that is a lot of what reproductive justice is about. It's a 40,000 foot look at what is happening in the overarching landscape. So reproductive justice is a concept 
um, that has been around for, you know, all time since Black women and Black queer women have really existed, which is forever. But it was named in 1994 by 12 Black women as a way to center the experiences of Black women in the lens and to really look at how everything informs our reproductive choices um, from housing to food insecurity to healthcare. And I mean, not even to mention the rising maternal mortality crisis that's happening in the black community and brown community um, and indigenous community. But reproductive justice is a way to look at these larger systems and how they're affecting women of color and femmes of color and our day-to-day lives. And criminalization is a huge, huge institution that really has ravaged the Black queer community for a really long time. Because as Valina was saying earlier, I mean, there are ways to try to attempt to pass as straight, but there are no ways to really attempt to pass as non- brown and non-black and our criminal justice system recognizes that right like there's no way to hide your ethnicity there's no way to really hide the hue of your skin or your melanin or some sometimes you can't hide the the kink and coil of your hair but when you walk into that courtroom as a black or brown person that's what they see first and foremost and your queerness may come in as part of the evidence or especially if it's, you know, a sex offense crime or a sex worker crime. But the blackness, the brownness, that is what I want us to remember as we're talking about criminalization and who's the picture of innocence and who gets to be free and who gets to not even be free, but who gets a fair trial, who gets a fair plea, you know, like talking, taking it back to the beginning around of plea bargaining. So reproductive justice calls us to look at this broad system for really what it is. And another part of my work is critical race theory is looking at how does the law reinforce these systems of racial hierarchy and racial injustice and how has have laws that have seemed neutral really been detrimental to the black and brown communities. And we're at this moment where we're waiting for the Dobbs decision, the Jackson Women's Health decision, where abortion could no longer be constitutional in a mere day, in a few weeks. Um, if anything, if it if the decision looks anything like the leaked opinion, which we assume that it will look very similar, if not the exact same as the leaked opinion. And it's problematic for so many reasons. It's problematic because it could mean that abortion is no longer a constitutional right, but it brings and gives space for abortion to be criminalized. And we know that people who will most likely be prosecuted are Black and Brown people who have the capacity to become pregnant regardless of whether they're seeking abortion or not. And I think that's really important. So it's it's not, I feel like a lot of the focus has been on criminalizing abortion, but it's really about criminalizing black and brown pregnancy and pregnancy decisions. Because if I become pregnant and anything happens to my fetus, whether I want it to or not, that is up for criminal debate all of a sudden. So I think it's it's really broader than just even abortion. It's really about criminalizing pregnancy. And 
I will stop there, but there's just, I mean, there's so many things. There's so many things. We're in this really important moment of painting a picture of what the path forward will look like and who's paying attention and who's fighting back. And that is just what's the most important piece is bringing awareness to this lens. If I could just jump in uh, on what Candace was saying, uh, we do have a problem of criminalizing how pregnant people use their bodies. Absolutely. So if you have a substance use disorder and you're on methadone maintenance, that can be a charge against you that you're harming the fetus. If you have a miscarriage, um, that can end up being a murder charge. So there's so many ways that we criminalize how pregnant people use their bodies. Thank you, Belinda. Let me, let me follow up on that with you. Um, it seems to me that there are a variety of, of, of core issues that are going on at once here. A group of them are with regards to what is a crime, what we define as a crime or what can be a crime under our system of justice and maybe under the constitution. Then there's a related, but at least conceptually separate question of how the laws are enforced and how those decisions are made, right? And then there is maybe even a third component, which is the impacts or effects of the criminalization and the enforcement. That there might be, for example, disparate impacts on communities of color or people who are members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so with that kind of a, just to give some kind of framework, what do you think are the areas that are in need of further discussion to improve criminal justice and should be the focuses of criminal justice reform going forward from your perspective? I think we need to talk about the power that prosecutors have with bringing charges. Uh, so that even if we see greater harassment of um, trans or queer individuals by police, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to turn into a prosecution and a criminal charge where someone then becomes part of that system and uh, even becomes incarcerated. Uh, and Eric, great point, as Candace said uh, about how these laws can be disparately applied. And as Richard walked us through a history of criminalizing uh, queer people for how they appear, for their actions. Uh, so sodomy laws, which, as Richard said, we continue to have on the books in a number of states, uh, were used specifically against queer people. I mean, it's the law itself doesn't always distinguish on who's committing these physical acts. It's the physical act itself. And yet the people who were prosecuted were specifically um, queer people in queer relationships. So the application of these laws and what charges are brought is crucial to unpacking what we may describe as a neutral law or a neutral ruling and seeing uh, who is actually being charged and acknowledging that uh, people of color and poor people of color are uh, far more vulnerable to being arrested, charged, have a, a, a worse plea deal, have a harsher uh, sentence, and then serve time in prison. Yeah, and I just, I would add that there, there's a fair argument that the issues of wrongful conviction that you discuss and wrongful conviction phenomenon generally is really a, a species of overcriminalization or uh, that this is in fact, the, the two phenomenon should be speaking to one another. 
Um, let me let me turn to Richard for his thoughts on this and in terms of areas or topics that you believe should be the focus going forward in um, in criminal justice reform discussions uh, from your perspective and that perhaps of, of Lambda Legal. So I, I think the focus needs to be how do we keep our community outside of the criminal legal system? We know that LGBTQ people interact with the criminal legal system at higher rates than non-LGBTQ people at every point of the entire system. So for example, um, policing and uh, the profiling of LGBTQ people, of course, LGBTQ people of color experience higher rates, you know, because you have to look at the whole person and what our experiences are. It's not just an LGBTQ issue, it's an LGBTQ issue and a racism issue that we experience when we're trying to just walk to the store and are stopped by police because of something that we're wearing or me as a cisgender brown queer man if i don't appear in a way that a police officer thinks i should look you know are they going to stop me um that has happened to friends community members loved ones and we know um, in 2012 lambda legal we conducted a community survey called protected and served where we ask those questions to our community members. Um, have you ever interacted with law enforcement? What happened? You know, and we heard from a number of people um, from, from the respondents around 73% reported that they had interacted with police within the past few years. That's such a high number of just like, you know, one, <laughs> Three out of four of us, you know, we're, we're just going about our day and we have to interact with police. And these the questions didn't just go to like, um, were, were you stopped by police officers, but also people who went seeking help. And then the next set of questions dealt with what happened. And we heard a number of respondents who experienced um, um, discrimination and harassment, um, verbal harassment, sexual violence against people physical violence against people. And these are both folks who went seeking help and folks who were stopped by law enforcement. Um, that's just one set of statistics. Um, Lambda Legal and Black and Pink National, we recently launched a follow-up to the Protected and Served um, survey that can be found at www.protectedandserved.org where we want to dig deeper into the experiences of our community because we need this data to help us with, um, one, to help create um, additional community resources on how to advocate for change within the, the criminal legal system. Um, I use this information all the time with policy advocacy, um, speaking with lawmakers about here are the numbers here are, behind every number is one of our community members who have had these experiences. You know, you have the power to help create change here. And also in litigation, I, I think one area that Lambda Legal has focused on and relates to some of the things that Candace and Valina have, have mentioned is, okay, we, made some decisions as a society, like this is what the criminal legal system is going to look like. Um, these are the people who have authority. Here's how decisions are made. Prosecutors play a role. Criminal defense attorneys play a role. And the courts play a major role here too. 
we are supposed to be guaranteed a right to a fair and impartial trial and jury. And that when we go in front of um, the judge and um, or if we're being heard by a jury of our peers, that they're going to listen to the facts and the law. But we know that's not always true. <laughs> we know that there uh, there is anti LGBTQ bias and discrimination within these proceedings, and it starts from as soon as someone walks through the door. When I used to do more um, um, direct service and um, would go to the different courts with my clients, you know, the first thing I would tell them is, as Valina mentioned, um, something similar. Hey. I want you to be comfortable, but you're going to be in front of a judge and you're going to have to go through security. So please be aware of that because they will stop you. They will search you if you don't look like the, of, of, in a way that they think you should look. That's not a fair court, you know, and that's even before you even go in to talk about what brought you there to begin with. Um, but Something that Lambda Legal has been working on is training um, judges and, and attorneys on how to use um, the, the tools that we have, for example, jury selection and voir dire, to try to root out the bias in doing um, jury selection. We are also involved in a, a few cases where judges have not permitted questions about potential anti-LGBTQ bias during um, um, jury selection. And that just raises a number of questions about like, who are the gatekeepers? Who gets to determine, to determine what the constitution says you must have, that you have a right to, and what happens when it doesn't happen? So I think our safeguards are there, but they're not being used in the, the way that is um, effective in rooting out bias. Judges have a big role to play. And yes, prosecutors have a big role to play, play but they've also have benefited from the system that has let them make these decisions, bring these cases, knowing that, you know, you might not be able to rehabilitate a juror who says, I hold these anti-LGBTQ biases, but we're going to go forward anyways. Thank you, Richard. Uh, similar question for you, Candice. Um, as you look forward with the issues that currently uh, uh, fulfill your docket, what do you see as the areas that should be the focus for uh, criminal justice reform. Yeah, I actually wanted to go to Valina. Did you want to respond to Richard? Thank you. Just briefly, particularly about the jurors. So in uh, the book Manifesting Justice, these two women who are lesbians are on trial and the attorney in doing the voir dire, questioning the jury, seeing if there can be a fair and impartial jury asks, okay, there's it's an assault charge. The trial hasn't started. You haven't heard any of the evidence. You learn that these two women are lesbians. Would you convict them now? And two people raised their hands. Without hearing any evidence, two people raised their hands and said, yes, I would convict them of assault because they are lesbians. And then to Richard's point, the judge got mad. The judge said, why are you asking these questions? You're confusing the jury. You're confusing the issues for them. That's inappropriate. So Richard, did you have something to say to that? Yes, and, and Candace, please join in. You know, <laughs> this, this, is, this is just breaking up of how there are so many examples that we can draw from on these issues. And one of the most difficult cases I have worked on um, 
Lambda Legal, we filed an amicus brief, um, both at the Eighth Circuit and then also in support of a um, cert petition at the Supreme Court on behalf of a death row inmate, um, Charles Rines um, in South Dakota. What Valina just mentioned, you know, what happens at the beginning of the case during jury selection, it follows through anti-LGBTQ biases present in all of the different phases of a trial and in sentencing. And for Mr. Rines, there was evidence that during jury deliberations after the, he was convicted, the jurors discussed the fact that he was a gay man in determining whether to sentence him to life in prison or the death penalty. And some of the comments that were made really drew on stereotypes and biases against gay men that, you know, something along the lines of, well, if we sentence him to life in prison with other men, that's, you know, that's giving him something he wants. You know, this is a life or death situation. It can't be more stark than that. What should the court do if they find out about this, that this happened? We thought the Supreme Court had given an answer in a, uh, a case dealing with uh, um, race discrimination that was decided uh, a, a year or two before um, the Ryan's case went up. Um, the cert petition was filed in the Ryan's case in a case called Pena Rodriguez v. Colorado where during the jury deliberations, there were um, comments made about the fact that he was um, Mexican and you know how Mexicans are. And, you know, the jurors were able to say, hey, you know, we really talked about his race. And the, and the um, Supreme Court said, you know, you need to evaluate that, assess it. And, you know, you have, a, you have an opportunity to raise these issues even after the um, conviction of, and this was about the jury deliberations, which we hold, you know, that this is a very, sacred part of the role of the juror that, you know, that we want these to be kept confidential, but what happens when they're so infected by bias that it leads to an outcome that is prejudice? We believe that that same principle should apply to sexual orientation. Um, the court did not grant cert in Mr. Ryan's case, and um, in 2019, he was executed. So these, these things are all related. And, and as I said earlier, unfortunately, there are just so many examples that we can draw from about where the system has failed. Candice, if you'd like to uh, add anything? Yeah, sure. So something that I've been thinking about as I've been preparing for this conversation is really thinking about criminalization as a larger systemic issue beyond just a trial by jury really so really expanding it using that that reproductive justice that lgbtq liberation lens and i'm it, you know conversations like these i'm always thinking about what's not being said and one of the things i want to bring light to is really the reality that there are violent crimes that are committed against queer folks, against people of color, against queer trans people of color, and those go nowhere. Those aren't criminalized. So I think it's really important to think about who's even criminalized, who even gets into that system to get to a potential jury trial. Who's even, who's even sentenced, who, not even sentenced, who's even arrested. And so I've been thinking about just all of the crime that's the police killings, the police brutality against Black boys and girls unarmed living their lives. 
And then what? And then not, and then the black community we hold our voice, you know, we hold our breath as we're waiting to hear about the trial. And then there is no trial. There's no arrest. There's no nothing. And we're just like, okay. And then here comes another one. But yet young black boys are in their neighborhoods and a police strolls by and picks them up for vagrancy, picks them up for loitering, picks them up for whatever they want to pick them up for. And so I think there's just such a double standard of who is criminalized in our country that has to be really reckoned with because I think that that's what makes it really difficult for me as a policy lawyer, but also just as a person in my personal capacity as a Black person living in the U.S. around the criminal justice system is that it's it's only one-sided. It's only us living our lives, doing bird watching in Central Park, doing walking, doing random things that are criminalized. But when we are violently killed, nothing. And so even to get to the jury trial, we have to put that into context. We have to lead the conversation with that really, really gruesome reality. Let's, uh, let's uh, end with the author herself. Belina, if you could provide us some thoughts on your experience in writing this book and what you would like to see come from it. Thank you. So the end of the book, I actually make a checklist of actions we can take to manifest justice. So even if someone just picks up the book at a bookstore and flips to the very back, they can see some suggestions for things that we can do. And it's both what lawyers can do, like those of us on this call, but it's also what we as community members can do in um, speaking up to our legislators, in uh, being involved with clemency proceedings, um, and in making sure um, we are visible, our voices are heard, uh, and that decision makers like legislators, like judges, like prosecutors, that decision makers have to reckon with um, the actual impact of their decisions uh, and recognizing uh, the harms that are happening. And particularly, like Richard said at the beginning, we're in a space right now where it is very important for there to be visibility uh that you know if we're potentially criminalizing in some states taking a child to a drag show okay what about all of the drag queens who do readings for children at bookstores let's see that let's make that visible let's take the stereotype and the harmful criminality narrative out of that and say, what are we actually seeing here? Let's look at the humanity of all of us. Um, and that's the way to combat false narratives and future criminalization. Thank you, Belina. That brings us to the end of our time today. We wanna to thank our guests for a terrific discussion. Professor Valina Beatty, author of the new book, Manifesting Justice, and a ASU law professor and deputy director of the Academy for Justice here at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Also wanna thank Candace bond Terrio, the director of racial justice policy and strategy at Columbia University Center for Gender and Sexuality Law, and Richard Sines, senior attorney with Lambda Legal and strategist for Lambda's work on criminal justice and police misconduct. Thanks also to our producer, Amina Kachin-Kamau, 
This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.